You are listening to the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. If you're interested in the trends that are transforming hospitality and want to explore what the future of the industry might look like, then you're in the right place. This podcast is brought to you by Stay the Night, a creative marketing agency working with hospitality businesses around the world who are changing the way people stay, work and play. Hi, I'm Rosie Willen, co-founder of Stay the Night, and in this episode, I'll be chatting with James Grasso, Head of Real Estate and Investment at Cohabs. Cohabs is a Brussels-based global co-living brand with properties across Europe and in the US. Last year, the company raised $58 million in a Series B round to fund their expansion. In this episode, we discuss how these funds have been used so far, the advantages of owning buildings versus master lease agreements, and the biggest challenges facing co-living in the next five years. So hi James, welcome to the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. First of all, can you tell me a little bit more about your background and your role at Cohabs? Sure, so for some quick background on myself, I uh, started my career sort of doing more conventional real estate. I worked for a handful of real estate private equity funds. Um, I actually worked for an investment bank doing real estate investment banking for two years, took some time off, did some traveling, stayed in a lot of hostels and really sort of loved the community element of that. Wanted to find a job where I could sort of mix my experience in real estate with sort of the things that I love about spaces and places and co-living sort of fit the bill. So I joined a co-living startup called Quarters. And I lasted about six months there before they went underwater, but really good experience. Uh, so I, I joined Cohabs a year ago, almost a year ago. And Cohabs, they were started in 2017. They've got about 600 beds open um, across 44 buildings globally in Brussels, Paris, and New York. We'll have about 900 beds open by the end of the year. And we hope to get to about 2,000 beds by the end of next year. And yeah, no, it's, it's certainly an exciting time here. We, uh, we've got two new places that we just opened in, Madrid and Luxembourg. We just bought our first house in Luxembourg, and we've got one under contract in Madrid. Hopefully, we'll expand to another two or three cities by the end of, uh, of the year. Um, and we're currently 100% leased across our entire por- portfolio. We don't really have a lot of vacancies and we certainly have been generating premium rents. So yeah. happy with the performance um, of the company as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's kind of like the long and short of it. No, that's great. And so last May, obviously, you raised $58 million in the Series B financing round. So you might have touched on there with the new openings, but how have you been using these funds so far? Yeah, exactly. So unlike a lot of other clothing operators, we actually, we own all of the real estate. So the majority of that money is towards the funding of new acquisitions. Whereas when I worked at quarters, we would kind of use the money to pay for the master lease. Here, we're actually using the money to go out and acquire real estate. So I would say about, you know, three quarters of that is, is used to acquire real estate, maybe a little less than a quarter is used to sort of um, fund the operating expenses and, uh, and the new hiring of the company. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and yeah, as 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 I mentioned, I think a big part of that fundraising was expanding to new markets, right? So we're very established in Brussels. That's that's kind of where we um, have created our our scale, and and that's where the majority of of the company kind of sits and operates from. Um, but we're planning a huge expansion um, in Paris, obviously in New York, Luxembourg, Madrid, and as I said, hopefully in three or four more countries in the near future. Yeah, it sounds like a really exciting time. And so I was going to ask actually about why Cohabs opts to own buildings rather than to operate on master lease agreements. So what freedoms does that give you that other co-living operators might not have? I think it's I think it's a ton. I think one sort of having control over everything from the acquisition to the to the development to the floor plan to the decoration to the leasing strategy, even like the budgeting of of the property really allows you to kind of execute on your strategy. Well, I, I think sometimes when you kind of have uh, the landowner and the operator, there's a bit of sort of an adversarial push and pull, right? The person who owns the building just wants to kind of drive rents. The person who operates the building, they also want to drive rents, but they want to sort of be able to instill their brand and they might have an idea for what they want a floor plan to look like. And the owner may have an idea what they want the floor plan to look like. So kind of having one cohesive um, ownership structure, I think kind of really allows us the autonomy to do what we want. Um, and I think it's important because we have a very unique design style. We have a very unique approach to co-living, um, which I can sort of touch on in a little bit. But, you know, we prefer kind of larger units with like six to seven beds as opposed to two to three to four beds. And it's it's a very kind of European model that has worked for us in, in New York. And I'm, I'm not sure that's a strategy that we would be able to execute if if we were merely an operator or um had a master lease yeah no that makes perfect sense and so you've just mentioned that the the, that european model in new york what are the key differences you've seen because you work across both um, between the u.s and the european co-living markets yeah exactly so you know having worked for quarters which was headquartered in germany but then also had a huge presence in the u.s i i got to see it a lot there and I think there's a a pretty big difference. And I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the legislation and the sort of preference for um, how many roommates you want. I think in Europe, co-living is is much more institutionalized. It's really been around for 10 to 20 years. People know it, you know, hostels were sort of the original predecessor. So I think there it's much more mature. There's very different there's various types of co-living. There's co-living for adults. There's luxury co-living. There's co-living for seniors. Um, in the U.S., it's still very new, and um, I think a lot of concepts are still trying to innovate and, and really um, begin to find their niche. I think in Europe, they tend to have, you know, you might have 18 to 20 beds in one house, um, and everyone shares a giant kitchen, and everyone shares a giant space and living room and theater um at least the way it started in new york was it it looked a lot like sort of conventional multifamily where you just get two to three people maybe four or five all in one unit 
and it's just random roommates. And I, I think there's sort of less of a community element in the US. So I think that's kind of the main difference. But I, I, I think they're beginning to converge to some extent. But still, it's, it's just so early in the US that it's, um, it's still sort of everyone's trying to figure out their strategy. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you've mentioned hostels a couple of times because Stay the Night actually started life as a marketing agency specializing in hostels solely. Oh, really? And then when we saw that different types of hospitality brands would wanting to get that community, yeah. that hostels do so well, we then expanded um, the brands we worked with. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll turn the question on you, actually. <laughs> like, what do you see as... The difference between sort of American and European, um, call it hostels, mm. co-living, kind of anything in uh, the hybrid hospitality space. Yeah, so I think so. We have clients both in the US and in Europe, and I'd say what we've always seen as a challenge with the US is the perception around anything to do with shared spaces that so that the term hostel had a lot of negative connotations in in and of itself in the US and so that kind of was dropped on that side of the pond by a lot of brands who didn't want to bring that connotation with it and I think with co-living I imagine that's not the same challenge because it's different branding obviously and it's a higher-end product but I think anything around like shared rooms for example I know that's probably not something you guys I don't know if it's something you guys offer. We don't do the shared rooms yeah. concept yet. Yeah, everyone kind of has their own space. Hmm. But do you find any resistance around sharing other spaces or do you think that's something that's becoming more accepted in the US? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that's something, as I said, that sort of makes cohabs a bit more unique is that the way we design our homes is, you know, you've got a couple units as I said, we try to get sort of six to seven rooms per unit, which is a bit unusual. But for us, that sort of reinforces the community element of the brand. And then we actually we design our spaces in a very purposeful way to get people to sort of spend time in these large shared areas. Right. So we might create a unit with like six to seven people that um you know, has a decent common space for that unit, but the more desirable common space is the rooftop or the backyard or the basement, which has the TV and the gym. And basically it's, it's a way, and it's really, it's, it's designed for people who sort of want to spend time with other people and really want to take part of the cohabs community. Whereas I think a lot of other brands, they sort of offer co-living as a convenience factor, right? It's cheap rent. It's a flexible lease term. You kind of have to share a kitchen. You kind of have to share a living room. You might have some communal stuff, a roof deck, but you know, a lot of money and time really hasn't been invested in, in sort of creating those spaces as places where people want to spend time. So you know, it's it's tough to say sort of what model will work in the U.S., but we found that sort of creating big open places for people to sort of meet and congregate drives the community and it, it makes people want to stay longer and it makes people want to pay more. And do you link up, so say in Brussels, I believe you have 43 houses now that might be. Yeah, I think we've got 
I think we've got a little under 40 in Brussels okay. and then we've got a few in Paris and a few in the US. Yeah. And so how do you then, do you link up the community between those properties? Do you have um, like get togethers? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the community element is done on a few levels, right? It's done in the house. Mm-hmm. It's done in the neighborhoods done in brussels and then we've actually begun to do it on a more global scale as well we we hosted a retreat in in brussels um over the summer and we flew in people from all over the world to meet and hang out i think that's kind of less of the norm but the idea is to sort of really create like a global community where you kind of have your friends in the house we try to buy houses in New York a little bit in clusters so we can sort of create a more of a local community. Um, and then obviously um, the idea is to sort of have everyone be together, whether it's a house, a neighborhood or a different country. And so who are your key target markets and have they changed at all in light of the pandemic and the way that people's lives have changed? Yeah. So I would say the key target market, I I think the average renter is sort of mid to late 20s. Perhaps it's a little older in New York than it is in Europe. But I think of how it's changed in terms of the pandemic. I think a lot of co-living companies, at least in the US, relied on sort of international workers, right? Because they're the ones that are sort of more familiar with it. They kind of know how it works. They need it, right, because they might not have a credit score or they might only be looking to stay for a few months. And we lost a lot of those renters during the pandemic, right, because everyone was going home, people were losing their jobs, their visas. So I think it became a little bit more Americanized um, kind of during COVID. And now that sort of the tap has been turned on and people are, are sort of beginning to come to the U.S. for work. It's sort of, it's it's retained that sort of original um, diversity that it had kind of pre-pandemic. I would say the average renter, yeah, maybe a little more established in their careers in in, in the U.S. where in Brussels, you know, it's it, it strays a little bit younger. But I think generally just people who are sort of socially active and want sort of the opportunity to meet as as many people as they can. Yeah. And so we've talked a little bit about how Cohabs is unique from a business perspective with the owning the buildings, but what makes Cohabs unique in the co-living sector for residents? It's a great question. I mean, I think first the obvious one is just the community that we have. I think there's not a lot of other brands that really spend time on that. We invest a ton of money in our technology, right? So we make it just as seamless as a experience as, as possible. Um, we've got basically a service called a, a white glove check-in, which is something that's installed on the app, which basically it guides you through how to check into your room. You take pictures of your room for the security deposit. You learn who's in your house, you're kind of plugged into the events of your house, your neighborhood, your community. Um, I think that's a huge element. Yeah, sorry, that's probably not my best answer. But, no, that's, uh, no, that's totally fine because I was going to ask about the tech. Um, okay, yeah, in yeah. In terms yeah. of how that's creating that seamless guest experience because you guys also have um, a subscription service, right, as well. 
Yeah, so the way it works for the tech is the way that we see it is, you know, having all of these smaller houses kind of spread all over the place. In order to scale responsibly, we need to sort of hire as as efficiently as as possible. And I think having strong tech can replace a lot of that staffing, right? So when it comes to leasing, right, it's a pretty seamless check-in process. It's a pretty easy process to extend your lease, to modify your lease. It's it's all done through our app. When it comes to property management, again, it's very easy. You just log on to your app, you um, log a problem, and we typically try to have a turnaround time in a few hours. Um, so I think that's kind of a necessity for us, right? Because as we grow, we can't hire a property management, uh, our property manager for every house. We can't hire, you know, a million people just to go out and sort of run the leasing process. So a lot of that has to be sort of um, very tuned in to our app and like a more uh, like centralized service. Yeah. And how do you, I'm, I'm curious from a personal perspective on this, because a lot of our clients are big on the community element obviously especially co-living clients but even in the hospitality space now community is you know the word um do you have a way that you measure that sense of community amongst your members yeah no it's 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 a great question like how do you measure something as intangible as community Mm. um and I think for us like it's just how long you stay. Right. And, um, I think people who really feel at home and kind of feel the warmth of the cohabs community and environment will just want to stay longer. Right. And you're kind of speaking with your wallet. And I I think that's kind of the way that I see it, but also I think there's other ways to look at it. Right. Like we hosted a Super Bowl party two weeks ago and we had almost three quarters of everyone that was living in a cohab's house arrive at the party and come and stay. Um, and I think that's kind of a huge improvement for us sort of as we begin to develop the community and have events. And um, obviously we, we weren't really able to have a lot of stuff during the lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I think even kind of the trailing few months at the end of the lockdown, people still had a little bit of trepidation, you know, do we go to events? So they've kind of come back and every time we have them, you know, we're, we're always hoping to get as many people as possible, but the turnout's just been absolutely incredible. Um, and I think that's sort of a testament to people, you know, wanting to spend time with each other and another stat that, um, that we look at and is really important to us. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, even more of a need for these sort of models for people now who were so isolated for the past two years, you know? So I was going to ask as well, how do you, you spoke about this, those spaces in being a part of bringing people together as well. How do you identify viable buildings for cohabs? What are the key factors that you look for? Yeah, it's it's a great, great question. Um, and it's very challenging, I will say, in, in New York, but um, there's certainly a way for us to kind of find deals that we like. I think the most important thing for us is obviously the location, right? We, we want to be in 
neighborhoods that people want to spend time in and want to live in. You know, our members work all over New York, so certainly proximity to transportation is very critical. In terms of the layout of the building, which I think kind of has a lot to do with the floor plan and sort of ultimately how we create those spaces, is just lots of light and air. Um, and in New York, there's not a lot of light and air. Um, <laughs> and I think it's important for us because when you get buildings that have, you know, light and air, whether it's a corner building, um, a building that has some light corridors um, or some light shafts or just has a really interesting layout, um, you're able to get a lot of beds in one unit. And when you're able to do that, you're sort of able to reserve space to sort of be the community space, right? When you have a really efficient layout, you can have a massive kitchen and you can have a massive deck and a backyard. And I, I think that's really important to us as well. I think also kind of being a company that was headquartered in Brussels and um, a lot of the properties that we've sort of bought and renovated there are very old, beautiful, beautiful buildings that were built in like the 1600s and the 1700s. And we look for properties in New York that sort of are able to highlight their sort of original architectural elements, whether that be sort of old brownstones or, you know, um, big open office buildings or anything that has sort of an interesting history. Um, that's something that our design team kind of loves to, to use and, and really, really work with, you know, we like to sort of expose the original elements of the property, whether it's sort of exposed brick or exposed timber, um, or kind of preserving the original tin ceilings, um, anything to sort of make the buildings look as, as beautiful as they do. Um, in Brussels is is hugely important to us. Yeah, no, I, I love that approach because I think it gives a real sense of place from within the building itself, not just from on the street. And so sustainability is one of Cohab's core values as well. And it's an area that we know that consumers are increasingly looking for businesses to address. So can you tell me more about how Cohab's buildings are operated sustainably? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a great question. I, I think the first is just having co-living is an incredibly sustainable model in the first place because you're using less resources per person, less heating, less cooling, less electricity, um, less building materials per person as well. So I think that's sort of inherent to the business model. I think the way that we design our properties, we we like to reuse a lot of parts um, of of the building, right? We we like to sort of use the existing beams and the joists and the old doors and sort of everything that we can. When we buy our furniture, we like to have it be vintage and refurbished, right? I think there's a huge a huge waste from um, not just the other operators in the space, but just from people in in general, right? It's it's very easy to go out and buy kind of the cheap IKEA stuff and you replace it every three to four years. And, you know, we certainly use Ikea chairs and, and couches and tables, but we really try to sort of buy old refurbished um, desks and chairs and, and couches and kind of anything we can um, just to sort of reduce our, um, our carbon footprint. Uh, I think on a corporate level as well, you know, we, we're hoping to be 
a B core in the next year or, or two. And um, a lot of that has to do with kind of carefully tracking our uh, our carbon footprint through our building materials, our energy use, um, and then offsetting that by, you know, planting trees, switching to solar, um, just less waste in general. And then I think the last thing is just kind of like pushing our members to be more responsible in the way that they are consuming, whether it's just uh, very careful trash sorting or energy monitoring or um, kind of anything along those lines. Yeah, no, that's great. I think it's really great to see all the things that companies are doing in that space now. And it sounds like you guys are with the B Corp thing. That would be amazing. Yeah. In terms of your expansion, then, do you plan to stay in mainly urban locations or are there plans to look at more rural locations in the future? It's hard to say sort of what the future holds, but I think the immediate plans are to sort of stay in cities. Um, I think that's kind of where co-living is is needed the most and sort of has the most demand. I'm certainly not opposed to sort of expanding into more rural areas in, in the future, but I, I think the way that we're choosing to expand is, is um, growing quickly, but responsibly and kind of knowing where and where our, our model does not work. And I, I think sort of the first step is, is really to just nail the model and the operations in the US and, you know, the New Yorks, the Chicago's, the Washington DC's of the world, um, and then kind of look to what the next uh, step is of co-living. Yeah, I can imagine if you can find those light, airy buildings in New York, then you'll have no trouble in the market, <laughs> hopefully. Uh, absolutely. So just looking back on your career, obviously you mentioned that you joined Cohabs from Quarters after Quarters did close its US locations. What are the biggest lessons you learned from that experience? I think the biggest lesson I learned from Quarters is that growing as quickly as possible is not the best way to scale a company and that you really need to focus on the fundamentals. I think the founders of Quarters and a lot of the early employees were incredibly entrepreneurial and smart and driven. And they were sort of the first ones to bring co-living to the US. And I laud them for that because it was entirely new asset class. And I, I think they kind of had to use this masterly structure, which, you know, maybe wasn't the most sustainable model, but you had to convince the owner of a property that this weird form of hostels was kind of the best way to run their property. And I, I think that takes just a ton of bravery to, to do. And again, I, I think they're incredibly smart and they're all in great, great places now. But I think sort of the downside of, of quarters was that they were just kind of growing without really looking at the model and what the best model was to sort of sustainably scale. Yeah. Um, and when you do a master lease, it's really easy to grow, but your margins are, are very, very thin and you are susceptible to sort of minor corrections in the real estate world and quarters learn that the hard way during COVID. And I think it's one of the things that I've kind of carried over to my role here at Cohabs is we want to grow. We want to buy a ton of beds. We really want to be sort of a huge global company in the next 
few years, but we also want to sort of be very attentive to detail and we want to just grind through the numbers and and make sure that what we're doing is profitable and prudent. And I, I, I think that's kind of the mindset that we have at Cohabs. Um, and quarters was a bit more just like, we're just going to grow as quickly as possible and it's going to work out. Yeah. Um, and obviously um, they hit a bit of a road bump. So. No, I totally get that. I think it's a challenge with any company, that level of sustainable scaling and how you balance ambition um, with with that attention to detail and the service, because even with Stay the Night, so we're at a point now where we're, or we're at the point now where we thought we were going to be in 2020 before the pandemic hit. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But we're scaling, and for us, that means hiring, you know, growing our client base. But it's also the business is my baby. It's my co-founder's baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't want to grow too quickly either without being unambitious because I think it would affect the level of service we offer our clients. So it's it's even we're a much smaller company and a much yeah. smaller company. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that same balanced strike and it, it is hard. And where do you guys think your kind of growth will come from the next few years is there a particular product or a particular market that you think will kind of drive your growth in the next call two to three years yeah oh this is um interesting it's <laughs> <laughs> on me um yeah so I think obviously specializing in the hybrid space has been a big advantage for us since the pandemic um and I think it's the fact that our USP really is specializing in brands that want to build communities like cohabs um, a lot of our clients are about that as well. And I think just in terms of the practical side, obviously we're a marketing agency. One of the big things doing successfully with our clients is the creating of content, even though we're not on site. So we work very closely with our clients' teams on the ground and we're developing some tech around that actually, which you heard it here first. Yeah, uh, to, to, uh, Facilitate that because obviously right now all marketing is shot from video is where it's at with reels and tiktok and that's not going anywhere and so in terms of co-living then what do you think will be the biggest challenges for co-living in the next let's say five years the biggest challenges for co-living i think biggest challenges for co-living i think first will be sort of the capital markets right especially in the u.s you know there's a lot of lenders that don't want to do it because they've never heard of it before mm. and while it sort of provides higher NOI for a property, you know, they're not comfortable with the downside. From an equity side, I think there's a huge institutional demand abroad. But again, co-living is a relatively young asset class in New York, you know, it, or in the US rather, it, it really started to grow and scale in like 2016, 2017. There were a couple of operators that were sort of slowly growing early on, but it's it's really only four to five years old in in terms of sort of large institutional product. So I think it's sort of being able to match entrepreneurial equity partners with operators that want to scale in the U.S. I think also kind of really nailing down the model, sort of how to scale efficiently and become profitable um, will be really, really critical um, obviously, the largest operator now is common in the U.S. Um, they have sort of taken the approach of management agreement, and maybe we're not only doing co-living, we're doing more conventional apartments as well. So they kind of have 
their own model. You know, we like to sort of own and operate all of our deals. Outpost Club, they're another model sort of, they've taken the approach of master leases with a mix of management agreements. June Homes, you know, they'll sort of do co-living for one apartment as opposed to an entire building. So there's kind of a plethora of strategies now that exist. And the real question will be, you know, which one is the best to sort of scale efficiently? And maybe there's a few, but, you know, there's yet to be kind of a large scale profitable co-living operation in the U.S. And uh, I think one of us will will solve the riddle in, in the next few years, but that's kind of one of the major challenges, I think, in the near term. Yeah. Um, and then I think just one more is just navigating the legislation, right? Because co-living laws, there aren't really laws around like co-living per se, and it's a bit of a gray area in some places. So I think kind of navigating that landscape and hopefully there'll be some more clarity. So we'll see. Yeah, no, definitely. It was sounding a bit um, Hunger Games there, like who will, <laughs> who will be the one? To Only one up? survivor. <laughs> um, and just to flip that question then, what do you think are the biggest opportunities in co-living right now? Biggest opportunities? I think there's a huge demand for the space, right? There's a huge, huge demand. And I think a lot of people want co-living, but they've never heard of it right? Like it provides so much that it, it, it provides such a great solution to people who are sort of moving to a new area for the first time and they don't want to buy furniture. They don't want to set up utilities. They don't want to lock in a year long lease. There's so many problems that it solves that I think whoever can sort of come up with a model that can kind of scale efficiently and cater to to these needs the addressable market i think is you know almost every 20 something in the us who's um moving to a new place for yeah. the first time and i think that's kind of the really exciting part about it is the opportunities are just completely endless right i think there's sort of opportunities to grow brand loyalty and you become sort of like a hotel flag where you want to stay at a common apartment or you want to stay at a cohab's apartment and you don't care if it's Tokyo or New York or Mexico City that's just the brand that you know and that you're used to and that you kind of spend your 20s moving between various houses around the world and I think there's a huge opportunity in in the space and uh, that that's what gets me really excited about it yeah, and that's what really interests me, that sort of the brand affinity that people are going to have with co-living because people feel that with, I certainly do, with certain hotel brands where you know that that's a stamp of quality. But with co-living, I feel like that has the potential to be even deeper because you're living there. It's your home. Um, and so that sense of ownership of the brand is probably a bit deeper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but thanks so much, James. That's been really great. Thanks for joining me today. Yep. Thank you very much for your time and, uh, and best of luck and uh, let's stay in touch. For those who want to find out more about Cohabs, visit www.cohabs.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Hybrid Hospitality Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you'd like to be the first to hear about new episodes. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so. 
Just search Stay the Night on LinkedIn or head to at Stay the Night Co over on Instagram. For more information about what we do, visit www.staythenight.net. Until next time, thanks for listening.